Well, this morning we are continuing in our series in Luke's Gospel, The Coming of the King. Last week when we met, we talked about that climactic statement of Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old where he says, I must be in my father's house. And we mentioned how that is Jesus' declaration of his relationship with his father, his unique relationship with his father. And then we talked also about what that implies in terms of the mission, in terms of what Jesus' mission will entail as we proceed in Luke's Gospel. Well, today we move on to the next narrative section, which is John the Baptist, who uh, was actually a Presbyterian. Um, Just kidding. Uh, And this is right before the launch of Jesus' ministry, which will follow. So the uh, text is Luke 3, 1 through 20. And you can follow along in your Bible, in the bulletin, or on the screen But please do follow along with me as I read from the ESV, Luke 3, 1 through 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Traconitetis, and Lysonius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you broad of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Let me pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word that you have met us today and given us the deposit of your Holy Spirit so that we can understand your word. And I ask that as we meet with you today in your word that you would confront us, that you would pierce to the core of our hearts, that you would encourage those who are downcast among us, that you would convict the prideful among us, that all of us would walk away knowing that you are a good and a gracious God who loves us, who has initiated fellowship with us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was in college, I graduated from Embry-Riddle about seven years ago. I had a persistent tendency just about every single semester to overcommit myself one way or another. I know a lot of us can probably relate with this. Well, during my junior year, for instance, I was a full-time student, I don't know how many credits I was taking, whatever full-time load was, trying to responsibly and diligently complete all my assignments like a good student, study hard for all my exams, and trying to do well. Now, as I'm sure many of you can attest, being a full-time student in a university setting is pretty time-consuming in and of itself. But along with being a full-time student, I also thought it would be a good idea to work two jobs, often on the same day. After class ended for the day, I would generally go to my flight instructor job where I would fly around Central Florida with students for a few hours, often watching my life flash before my eyes several times in the course of an evening. Then after landing and clocking out, I occasionally went to my PA announcer job over at Athletics. I've always been told I have a face for radio, so decided to try that out. Thanks, Gabe. And together with these two jobs and a full load of classes, I also had various other extracurricular activities I refused to relinquish. I needed to exercise regularly, and uh, who wouldn't want me on their flag football team, so I had to grace the intramural fields with my presence. Well, given that most of my days were running around, being spent running from one thing to the next, I also didn't have much time to sleep. But that wasn't a problem because the the summer before my junior year began, the university opened up a Starbucks on campus. So with caffeine regularly pulsing through my veins, I dove headlong into life as a college student during my junior year. Well, as you can imagine, it only took three months of me doing this day in and day out for me to hit a breaking point. Not only, not only was my life consumed by doing all of these things and by not getting enough sleep, but the icing on the cake was that I was doing all of this while aiming towards a future career that I was pretty sure God wasn't even calling me to any longer. So I reached a breaking point, and I remember that point very well, where the confusion, the exhaustion, and the anger kind of all set in at once, and I was confronted with the very real reality that something needs to change. Things just couldn't keep going the way they were going in my life. And I'm sure many of you can relate with this type of sentiment, whether over something minor or major, I'm sure many of us have reached a point in our lives or in our relationships where we're met with the realization that something needs to change. Things just can't keep going the way they are any longer. Well, friends, this brings us to our text this morning, where we find that a similar, though much greater sense of urgently needed change is the overarching tone in the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, to provide some brief background to our text this morning, notice that in the first two verses, Luke highlights for us seven different individuals who are in a position of power. If you remember, Luke gave us historical markers like this earlier in his gospel, too. Immediately after the prologue in verse 5, he told us that the events of Gabriel meeting Zechariah in the temple took place in the days of Herod. 
And at the beginning of chapter 2, right uh, at the beginning of Jesus' birth, he gave us another historical marker by listing a couple of other power brokers at the time. Now, in giving us these historical details, Luke's goal isn't merely to, to give us a timestamp for when these events took place. It does that, but it's more than that. His main goal is to highlight for us that this was a bleak time in Israel's history. You see, when we walk through each individual that Luke lists here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we get a sense that this wasn't a very positive time for the people of God. Tiberius, for instance, was an emperor who was deified as a god, much like his predecessor was. We talked about that back in the uh, birth narrative. Uh, Augustus Caesar was the first one to be deified as god, a god, and that just kind of, that trend continued throughout the emperors. And during the final years of Tiberius' rule, he suffered a mental breakdown, which led to the rest of his rule being characterized as a reign of pure terror. Pontius Pilate, beyond what we know of him as the one who authorized Jesus' crucifixion, led an administration that was marked by briberies, insults, and extensive injustice. He often would execute people without trial. And Pontius Pilate was the replacement given to the people because their previous ruler was even worse. Then when we consider the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, things weren't any better. Historical sources, from Josephus especially, indicate that the entire priesthood in the first century was hopelessly corrupt. So, from the top of the Roman government down to the priesthood, the, priesthood, the Jewish priesthood which was supposed to guard the people of Israel and guard the justice that they were supposed to exemplify, things weren't very good. Simply put, something had to change. In light of this bleak backdrop then, we meet John the Baptist, who arrives on the scene called by the word of God like a prophet, like a prophet of Jeremiah's stature, Hosea or Micah, to be the first step in the radical change that was about to take place in Jesus Christ. Things were bad, and the promises of God's climactic deliverance from the Old Testament were still unfulfilled, but now, at last, the world is put on notice that God is on the move. Notice from our text this morning that in verses 4 through 6, Luke 3, 4 through 6, Luke paints John's ministry as the fulfillment of Isaiah 43 through 5. That's the text he's quoting. And, you know, if you've read through the New Testament before, we see this trend pretty often and regularly. New Testament authors will quote Old Testament text in order to show that something or some event or Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of a certain text. And that's exactly what we find here. Now, this text that Luke is quoting from is a significant text in its Isaiah context. In its original Isaiah context, this text is part of a larger text that paints this grand vision of God's salvific redemption for his people, his deliverance for his people. And Isaiah casts this grand cosmic picture of redemption, a future deliverance, in the mold of a new exodus. If you remember from the Old Testament, from the, from the book of Exodus specifically, the Exodus was that event in Israel's history where God delivered his people Israel out of slavery and captivity in, Israel, in Egypt. He led them through the desert, uh, led them out through the Red Sea, and then finally, after 40 years, led them into the Promised Land. And so Isaiah is envisioning here in our text a new and final Exodus that would be greater in scope, greater in scale, and greater in efficacy than the first. So when Luke quotes this text, he's saying that with John, this new exodus work, this new exodus that was foreseen from long ago, is now about to be underway. 
John is the starting point of this new exodus. He was called to gather the people in the desert to await the exodus that Jesus Christ would ultimately lead. The new exodus, that at last, it wouldn't deliver God's people from the clutches of the Roman Empire. It would deliver God's people from the clutches of sin and death. Simply put, something had to change in the station of uh, redemptive history for the people of God, and this was it. It was the new exodus that Jesus Christ would ultimately bring. Now, although John's ministry looks forward to Christ, and it looks forward to the new exodus work of Christ, whereas we, who are sitting here in the 21st century, look back on the work of Christ, so to speak, what John calls his crowds to do in our text is very much still a calling for you and I. So what I want us to see from this text is that because of the new exodus work of Christ that begins with John, we, as God's people, are called, simply put, to repentance. And repentance, as we see in our text, takes three forms. Simply put, we are called from this text to heed the call of repentance. We're called from this text to bear the fruit of repentance. And we're called from this text to aim towards the goal of repentance. So simple three-point outline, the call of repentance, the fruit of repentance, and the aim of repentance. So first, because of the new Exodus work of Christ, we are called to heed the call of repentance. Luke tells us in verse 3 that John went into all the regions around the Jordan proclaiming this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the the picture here is John is moving around the region of the Jordan River, and he's gathering the people to prepare for this new Exodus work of Christ. And the essence of their preparation is found in John's call to repent. So first, there's the call to repent, and then undergoing the baptism of, as a sign of repentance. The true king was on his way. He was about to begin his work. And as such, wrote ceremonialism, presumption upon one's ethnic status, especially as we read here in verse 8, for Israel is over. And the majority of the people who come out to meet John to partake in this baptism of repentance, they apparently know this. These are people who have seen the wickedness and the corruption within the nation Israel. They've seen the corruption in the high priesthood with Annas, and the priests that followed from him, and Caiaphas, and they can no longer be part of it. This is a people who come out because they're convicted regarding their sin and how they've contributed to the sin and injustice that have characterized Israel up to this point. But they're also a people who see the salvation of God that's coming on the horizon, and it's just something they have to embrace. And as such, John's baptism isn't just one more ritual for them to undergo, It's a declaration that the sunrise from on high has visited his people at last in Jesus Christ and that God's ways were now going to be their ways. Looking back at our text again, specifically at the imagery here that the prophet Isaiah evokes from the text that Luke is quoting, this is imagery that pictures, if you can imagine, a road that's being being built and spans through valleys and through mountainous regions. And it's a road that's being paved so that the conquering king, Jesus Christ, can ride upon. And how is this road paved? This road is paved through repentance. New Testament commentator R. Kent Hughes puts it like this. He says, the point we must not miss is this. The great highway John was building was one of repentance. The Baptist was saying, men not your road, but your lives. To put it in terms of American geography, repentance removes the obstacles flattens the Sierras, and fills in the death valleys in our lives so that Christ has full access. 
Something had to change. And the crowds are first called to repent as preparation for that change and then undergo baptism as a sign of repentance. Now, one quick caveat about this baptism that John brings. The baptism of John isn't the same baptism that we undergo as Christians today. Just as John's overarching role was preparatory, so too was the baptism he brought. If you remember back in Luke 1, 5 through 25, when the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah in the temple, and he tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and then he elaborates on what exactly this son John will do. And he says that their son John, his job will be to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, that's what we find right now, is this baptism is the preparatory role, this preparatory action, getting ready for the Messiah to come. Think of it like this as an illustration. If you've ever been to a pool, uh, a community pool, or uh, they made us do this in high school all the time, where they force you to hose yourself off before you jump into the to the real pool, well, that's maybe a, an analogy here to use. Uh, they're, they're called, they made us do that in high school gym class all the time. John's baptism, his uh, water baptism, is simply the cleansing, the getting ready for the real baptism of the Holy Spirit that would take place. This is the baptism John tells us explicitly in verse 16 that looks forward to the baptism in the Holy Spirit that Christ would bring. This is why in Acts 19, and remember again, Luke's writing a two-volume work, so there's a lot of uh, tie-ins and um, uh, links between Luke and Acts. In Acts 19, after the Apostle Paul meets some disciples who have only undergone the baptism of John, he baptizes them in the name of Christ. As Christians, the baptism that we undertake is one that is based upon the completed work of Christ and the present deposit of the Holy Spirit. But even though John's repentance baptism is unique in redemptive history, even though it's not the same repentance baptism that we undergo today as Christians, there are still significant points of contact between this repentance baptism that John calls his audience to and the calling for us as God's people to undergo repentance and baptism. First, just as John called a people to repentance, so too, friends, you and I are called to repentance. Protestant reformer Martin Luther, in his famous 95 theses that he nailed to that church door in uh, Wittenberg, Germany, his first thesis is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, the very word repentance, it means a changing of, one, of one's mind, a changing or, or a reorientation of one's life. It's a call not just to turn once in our lives, but it's an everyday recentering on the will of God in all areas of our lives. When we submit to Christ as Lord, it means that all areas of our lives he lays claim to, every single area. Repentance doesn't just mean throwing up an apology to God when we blow it. A posture of repentance, a lifestyle of repentance, means that the very structures of our thoughts, the way we think, the assumptions that we bring to the table on any number of issues must constantly and continually be changed and shaped and molded by the revealed will of God. A lifestyle of repentance, which is what John is ultimately calling the people to and what, which is what we're called to as a peop, as the people of God, is indispensable to discipleship. Now, I'm not sure if, if uh, what I'm about to say is true, but I heard this once, that uh, at one point in history, several decades ago, the state-run church in China 
Now, things have significantly changed since then, but I was told by a missionary that the state-run church in China several decades ago wasn't allowed to preach repentance. But the gospel without repentance is no gospel at all. In fact, German scholar Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous Cost of Discipleship, calls a notion like this cheap grace. Bonhoeffer writes this. Bonhoeffer writes, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without requiring church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Simply put, without repentance, friends, we don't have Christianity. We don't have discipleship. But then second, lest we forget the other emphasis in this passage, the call of repentance, which is the call of all disciples, is a calling that begins in Christian baptism. Baptism is the picture of our union with Christ that all Christians are commanded to undertake. Through baptism, we receive the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, as our confession says. Baptism is a sign in that it's a visual representation of the promises of God that he makes to us in the gospel. And it's a seal in that it validates that we belong to him so long as we embrace him with repentance and faith. So have you been baptized? Whether as an adult or as an infant? We, in the uh, Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, we baptize infants of believing parents, not because we believe that they're regenerate believers. Baptism isn't a prediction. It's not a claim of regeneration. It's not a claim that the baptized person is regenerate. It rather signifies and seals that those who belong, those who embrace the promises with faith, will be washed from their sins and accounted righteous before God. And it brings us into fellowship then with the people of God. And so as such, baptism belongs to even the youngest members of the church. And it's the parents and the church's responsibility then to call our youngest members as they grow to repentance and faith, as they grow calling them to embrace the promises that were sealed to them in their baptism. So if you haven't been baptized as an infant or as an adult, and you've come to believe in Jesus Christ, we would encourage you to talk to one of our elders, talk to Rick or Carl or Gabe or myself. We would encourage you to undertake baptism, not the baptism of John, but the baptism that proclaims the finished work of Christ and that then joins the corporate body he has formed. Baptism is the starting point of discipleship, and it's the starting point of living a life of faith and repentance. So in a similar manner, as John called the people of Israel, so too we, friends, are called to baptism and repentance. Will you heed that call of repentance and remembering your baptism? Are you heeding that call? This leads to our second point then. Second, because of Christ's new Exodus work, we're called to bear the fruits of repentance. Simply put, genuine repentance, which is a crucial part of genuine discipleship, produces fruit. Now, one thing neither John nor we are saying is that we're somehow made right before God by the fruit that we produce. We aren't. John isn't saying this, and neither are we. John calls his audience to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and that's important. But Martin Luther, again, Martin Luther's saying is helpful here. Namely, that we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. In other words, genuine faith and repentance shows itself in the fruit that's produced. 
With that said, one feature of this text I, I find interesting is that when John is asked by the people, what then shall we do? His entire focus to follow is on meeting the needs of others. Each exhortation in our passage in verses 11 through 14 relates to how one handles his or her possessions, how one handles his or her wealth in relation to others, and especially in relation to the poor and the disenfranchised. Furthermore, Luke and John aren't addressing the wide-scale systemic injustice that we've already talked about. It's true that the priesthood was corrupt, and that the temple that was supposed to be a place where justice was carried out was no longer such a place. But these exhortations that Luke and John make move away from calling out this wide-scale systemic injustice, and instead they narrow in and they address rather ordinary people, people like you and I. First, the crowds are addressed in verse 10. It's not necessarily clear who these crowds were, but the initial call is very clear. They are called literally to get the shirt off their back and to open their pantries to the hungry. Second, the tax collectors are addressed. Now, from what I've read, tax collection was a very uh, complex, uh, a very complex system in the Roman Empire. Um, some things never change, I guess, do they? Uh, but the essence of it was that tax, tax collectors had to first and foremost upfront money to the Roman government. They were required to bid for their role as being a tax collector. And so they had to first bid, and then they had to upfront all of the required taxes that would have been due for the area that they were in charge of. And then it was their job to go to the people and recuperate the taxes that they paid, and also to set their own fees on top of that. Needless to say, this became an extraordinarily fraudulent system that led to tax collectors making huge profits. And then finally, the soldiers are addressed. The soldiers' wage of the day uh, was a pretty menial wage. It wasn't a large sum. They made just enough for basic provisions and little more. Uh, so in contrast to the, to the tax collectors, who were very wealthy individuals, the soldiers were not. And so we have really the whole, uh, the whole schema of people that could be addressed in this passage being addressed, both the rich, we might say, or those who are richer, and those who are maybe poor. But nevertheless, even these soldiers are commanded to eschew the exhortation that had become so commonplace in their profession. As we can imagine, these commands might have struck at the core of all of those who came out because he struck at the status quo. We could imagine that each individual John is addressing, each individual in these, in these larger groups, they could have blamed it on the system. They could have said something like, hold on a second, John, I'm just doing what everyone else is doing. I'm just playing the game like everyone else. Yet the exhortations from John have presumably cut to their core because rather than being defensive or blame-shifting or blaming it on the system, they recognize the part, maybe even just the minimal part, that they have also played in propagating corruption among the people of Israel. This command to bear fruit, which expresses itself in being concerned with the needs of others rather than maintaining the status quo, is so important to John that when the crowds come to him in the desert initially, John's tone is pretty harsh. Now, I worked for Campus Outreach. Guys, I worked for Campus Outreach for a number of years, and it was never part of our evangelism strategy when students would come to us to call them broads of vipers. Um, wouldn't recommend starting a conversation that way, right? But John does. John calls these crowds who come to him right away, calls them broads of vipers. But as harsh as John's tone comes across, and if we dove into the imagery that John is using here, John is essentially calling them sons of Satan, 
Nevertheless, as harsh as John's tone comes across and as uncomfortable as it probably makes some of us, it's driven by the urgency of the situation. With the launch of the new Exodus work of Christ, this final salvific work that is underway, there also comes an urgent note of judgment. John here in verse 8 is tapping into what we would call Old Testament Day of the Lord imagery. And this is prophetic imagery that's really littered throughout the prophets, especially in the minor prophets. And it's a, it's a, Day of the Lord imagery is a twofold thing. One, it pictures this grand salvific work for the people of God. It pictures a day when the, when grand cosmic salvation will be in store for the people of God, much of like what we've already talked about in the outset with that Isaiah 43 through 5 passage. Day of the Lord imagery first and foremost pictures that grand salvation. But it also, at the same time, is vividly picturesque of the inevitable judgment for those who don't attach themselves to God's ways. For those who presume upon their ethnic status, for those who presume upon their own morality or their own law-keeping, or on those who have made a habit of denying justice to the poor and the needy. The judgment that John pronounces here is real judgment, and it's frightening. But it's also an announcement that's gracious, because its very announcement is intended to jolt God's people to life and to repentance. And that's the effect that it has. It leads the crowds to ask the genuine question, what then shall we do? That's also met with a patient, though stern, answer from John. You see, throughout this entire exchange, working in the background, if we were to take maybe a 30,000-foot approach or, or peer behind the background to this text, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is very much active in this whole exchange between John and the people. Remember back in Luke 1, 5 through 25, the text I've alluded to a few times now, where uh, the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah in the temple? Well, he tells Zechariah in the temple that the Spirit would be the one to empower John's ministry. And so in our text today, it's the Spirit who's active in John's ministry, taking hold of the people of God and even leading them to ask the question, what then shall we do? And friends, this is what the Spirit does in our lives too. When God the Spirit is at work in our lives, we'll hear the word of God and respond. This doesn't mean that these notes of judgment that we read in this text will be any easier for us to process through or comprehend. And it doesn't mean that we won't blow it many times, day in and day out, in terms of bearing the fruit that we're called to bear. But it does mean that gradually our hearts will be softened more and more as the Spirit grabs a hold of our lives and as he turns us daily to the true King, Jesus Christ, a humble, submissive, teachable Spirit that desires more and more to bear fruit will gradually, over the course of our lives, begin to blossom. Christ's new Exodus work leads us, by the Holy Spirit, we should add, to bear the fruit of repentance. And then finally, this leads to our third point. Third, because of Christ's new Exodus work, we are called to focus on the goal of repentance. Simply put, Jesus is the goal of our repentance. He is the object of our faith. John's issuing of these specific instructions to the crowd elicits surprise, right? It elicits expectation. By the Spirit, the crowds have understood that change is in store for the people of God. They hear this tone of warning, and they're now aware of what exactly John is calling them to do. But the fruit they're called to produce, friends, isn't an end in itself. It's important, 
But lest they missed what's central to the new Exodus, John points them to the Messiah. He points them to Jesus Christ. He first corrects them by reminding him that he's not the Messiah. He's only preparing the way for Christ, for Christ's new Exodus work. But then he points them to Christ. And it's in this text, verses 16 and 17, where we learn two things about the Christ who brings the new Exodus. First, we learn from verses 16 through 17 that this Christ Jesus will be a just king. Friends, we just can't avoid the note of urgency and judgment in our text this morning. John raised this in verse 7, as we read, when he discussed the wrath to come. And he raises it again, this time even picturing Jesus as the one who will execute judgment. Now, this isn't normally how we picture Jesus. We don't like to think of Jesus as the one who will execute judgment. I don't like to think of Jesus that way either. But the point is this. The seriousness of our sin, the ways we have failed to love God and the ways we have failed to love others, needs to be dealt with. It can't simply be brushed under the table. And Christ, the true king, is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect one who deals with that sin. So to paraphrase the author of Hebrews, if we spurn the only perfect sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ, who's the cardinal answer to all of our hopes, the cardinal answer to all of our sins, the only one who can deal effectively with our sin, if we spurn the Son of God, where does that leave us? If not Christ, who's freely offered to us in the gospel, then judgment is all that remains. But we also learn from our text that Jesus Christ is a benevolent king because he's the king who leads the new exodus, who delivers his people from the grips of sin and death and who gives us himself, who gives us God the spirit, the spirit of Christ. And for the people of God, those of us whom he calls, who attach themselves to Christ by the Holy Spirit, our God will then form us into the image of his son. And as we embrace a lifestyle of repentance and faith, driven and guided by the Spirit of Christ who is actively at work in our lives, we, friends, will be transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Repentance asks not merely, what must I do? It asks not merely, how have I transgressed the law of God? What is expected of me? But a lifestyle of faith and repentance is driven by the king and aims towards the king. Repentance keeps its eyes on Christ, and it beholds the beauty that he is. So in conclusion, something needed to change, and something would change for the people of God. The true king, Jesus Christ, was about to act and lead a new exodus. But this wouldn't be, again, the exodus that delivers God's people from the clutches of the Roman Empire. This would be a new exodus that leads God's people from the clutches of sin and death. This is a new exodus that leads us even now to await the new heavens and the new earth. And the only proper response to such an act of God is to be united to Christ through repentance and faith. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be to us. That you are a God who is just, but you are a God who is generally, generously just in Jesus Christ. And I ask that as we hear the calling of the gospel this morning, that we wouldn't harden our hearts, that we would see our sin, and that you would lead us to repentance, and you would lead us to faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only 
effectual substitute for our sin. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.